Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm just gonna, so looking forward to this hour. I'm going to be joined by Dr. Doug Gruthaus, who might be just one of the smartest apologists speaking and writing today. He uh, summers in Willow, Alaska, and the rest of the time he's in Denver. In one of his weaker moments, I asked him if he would commit to making 100 appearances on my show, and he said yes. And I do have that on, on record, on tape. So I think he's got 92 left after today. He has written a number of books, uh, Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Christian Faith, Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament, Philosophy in Seven Sentences, Unmasking the New Age, Confronting the New Age, Revealing the New Age Jesus, Christianity That Counts. I could go on and on, but he's here today to discuss the worldview of critical theory. And my question to start with, is it in is it compatible with Christianity as well as the American system or not? I've asked Dr. Peter Kapsner to join me for a deeper dive on this discussion as well as giving him a chance of earning two points towards his community service obligation. <laughs> <laughs> Let me first greet Dr. Doug Gruthaus. Doug, welcome. Yes, thanks. Happy to be here. Yep, yeah, thanks. <laughs> now, are you back in Denver or are you back in Alaska? No, we've been in Denver for quite a while. We actually spend a little time in Florida also. Oh, wow. I could, I could teach by Zoom anywhere. So Oh, good point. Yeah, my wife and I spend a little bit of time there, but we're back in Denver. Yeah, how was your time in Willow? Uh, it was good. This this last time was really writing, 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 because there was no social interaction to speak of. Yeah. So I spent most of my time doing a second edition of Christian Apologetics. Okay. And I would imagine the happiest member in your family would be your dog. Uh, that's true. Yeah. He definitely is the happiest. <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen, is a, Kathleen is a close second. She's a, a happy, gentle soul, unlike her melancholic, brooding husband. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, to be in Alaska, I bet your dog just loved it there. Oh, yeah. Oh, he had the greatest time. He got to play in streams and go on hikes and run around and, find assorted dead animals to <laughs> chew on. Yeah, he had a great time. Yeah. Well, Doug, say hi to my friend, uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner. Peter, Doug's greetings. Yes. Hi, Doug. Nice to meet you. Yeah, hi. you too. I appreciate that Bill's bringing me in on a day with a real fluffy, non-controversial topic like this. So this this should be no problem. Well, he told me you were a hardline Marxist. So <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm here, Doug. <laughs> you got the dossier right. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Doug, where do we start on this topic? Yeah, well, I think a good place to start is that a lot of people have imbibed critical think, uh, critical theory without even thinking about it. It's just in the air. It's uh, on news reports. I listened to a short, well, short for me because I, I gave up on it quickly, but there's an NPR special over the weekend, and after about two minutes, I could tell the whole thing was just filled with critical theory. So a lot of people uh, don't know what it is, but they believe aspects of it. And this is really coming to the fore with a lot of the uh, 
racial upheaval, particularly the death of uh, George Floyd last summer and all the riots and all the uh, exclamations of, of systematic racism in the United States and calls to defund the police and claims that all white people are complicit and all white people are racist and so on. So there are a couple of assumptions to critical theory. It really comes out of Marxism, although some people don't know that Marxism is an atheistic worldview based on uh, the antagonism between the owners and the workers. I have to be very simple, but Karl Marx and his colleague uh, Engels, Frederick Engels, believed that uh, all the oppression throughout history was really due to people monopolizing uh, property and capital, and that the workers were always ripped off and marginalized and alienated, really. So the only hope for society was for the workers to revolt against the owners. And we've seen the, the bitter, horrible fruit of that in the 20th century with the Soviet Union and Red China and Cambodia, uh, maybe 80, 90 million people killed by the state, by their own civil government for not towing the line. Now, uh, what happened later is he had various thinkers who were part of something called uh, the Frankfurt School, people like Herbert Marcuse, Eric Fromm, and others who realized that the revolutionary Marxism wasn't the proper path to liberation, but you could do this in a more culturally incremental way by marching through the institutions, as one writer, Antonio Gramsci, put it. He said, we don't need a revolution on the streets. We can simply get the university positions, elect officials, control the journalism, and we can eventually uh, create a socialist society that way without a bloody revolution. And there's also the influence of another thinker, a French thinker named uh, Michel Foucault, who believed that power relations are the essence of society. And it's not just workers uh, or the uh, owners against the workers, but it's all kinds of different power relationships, especially the idea that there is a normative pattern for sexuality and that those that fall outside of it, like lesbians, homosexuals, bisexuals, are marginalized by those who have the power. That is now called heteronormativity uh, by people in critical critical theory or sometimes called critical race theory. So to try to get to the bottom of it, society is divided into power groups, the oppressors and the oppressed. So the oppressors would be whites, typically white males. And the oppressed are not so much based on their income, but on race and gender. So the oppressed would be African-Americans, Latino, Latinas, uh, some Asian Americans, and so on. So it's not really Marxism, which was all about economics and economic exploitation. It's more about cultural factors. And it's even harder to measure because the idea is that those who are oppressed have a viewpoint that is absolute truth. This is called standpoint epistemology, that because of their so called lived experience, they are the final authority on the reality of, of their race and of their society. So it's a, a weird combination of 
postmodernism and absolutism, because uh, postmodernism claims that there is no objective truth. Everything's a matter of relative perspective. But the idea here is that, well, it is a matter of perspective, but the perspective of the oppressed is the only one you have to listen to, because they have the insights and they have the lived experience. And if you uh, deny the claims of, let's say, systemic racism, that just shows that you're a racist. And this is very much like the old Marxist idea that if you challenge Marxism, it's because you're trying to perpetuate an unjust system. So we don't have to take your critique of Marxism seriously because you are simply trying to protect your vested interests. And if you critique any aspect of the critical theory idea, it's because you're trying to defend uh, heteronormativity or right white privilege or something like that. So uh, that's the basis of it as I see it. Doug, I'm wondering if you can follow up from some of that initial run at a foundation and, and maybe some origin of, of critical theory. And I guess a couple of comments about that. One is that we're not talking about being anti-reconciliation if you're anti-critical race theory. You're, you're, we're talking about being that that maybe is not the best method to achieve reconciliation. And I'm just wondering if you could maybe compare and contrast a little bit kind of what you outlined there with models or understandings of reconciliation of the 1960s and the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr. and some of what we saw there, because this sounds very different as you're talking about it compared to what was underpinning that movement back then. Oh, it's vastly different. If you're looking at the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s led by people like Martin Luther King, this is very much based on a Christian view of society and secondly, based on a respect for founding American ideals. And you find neither one of those uh, in critical race theory, or what is sometimes just called critical theory. So when Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, he is not afraid to invoke uh, God, that we're all created by God, nor is he afraid to invoke our founding documents, uh, that, that all men are created equal. So he says we need to cash a check that uh, black men and women are equal to white men and women, and this is in our founding documents. So he was not a revolutionary. He was a reformer. He wanted the country to return to its original principles, which he thought were extremely good. And he uh, foreswore any kind of violence, and he took that really. He, he was inspired by uh, Gandhi, but also Sermon on the Mount, he was a, a Baptist preacher, as well as, as having a doctorate in theology. So we see both of those things absent <clears throat> from critical theory. There's no uh, Christian ideal that we're all made in God's image, so, so we should all be treated with respect. There's no real respect for America's founding ideals, because the idea is that the the Constitution is just a racist document created to defend slave owners. Uh, very different conceptions. And uh, another thing is the civil rights movement really championed the idea of colorblindness. So Martin Luther King famously said that, I hope that my children can be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And recently, uh, Dr. Seuss books have been canceled because Dr. Seuss was an old line liberal who really believed in colorblindness. 
And he also had some depictions of minorities that people thought were insulting. I, I'm not even going to comment on that. I had I have one of the books. I think it's worth about seven million dollars now. But uh, <laughs> I, I have on Beyond Zebra, and there's one depiction of an Arab-looking man riding a camel, and supposedly that was racist enough to to get the book banned. But from what I can tell, uh, Dr. Seuss was uh, kind of an older line liberal who wanted a, a colorblind society. And and now we've got people like, oh, Robin DeAngelis with her book, right, uh, White Fragility, and others saying that, oh, no, no, uh, there's no such thing as colorblindness. We have to always consider race and color about everything. And she starts her book out by saying that I, I am white and I have a white worldview and I was socialized into whiteness. And it's really hard to to see something from another perspective. So she doesn't start with, I'm a human being, I'm made in God's image, we're all Americans, we have the freedom of religion and the freedom of speech and assembly and press. She doesn't start from there. She starts from difference and from oppression and that America is a, is a racist country. So the reforms that we've seen uh, don't really matter very much to her. Uh, she says the country was built on slavery and women didn't get the vote until 1920 and so on. So uh, she doesn't really have much faith in the system to correct things, at least not as quickly as she would like. Mm -hmm. And I like uh, what Thomas Sowell always says is whenever you see something you don't like, ask compared to what? <laughs> so if you don't, if you don't like things in the United States and you want them to improve, fine. But why don't we compare it to other countries in the world and yeah, other point. other uh, civil governments and then look at the progress that the United States has made against racism and sexism it's not to say things are are perfect that we've attained all we need to attain but what i see in critical theory is basically a, a damning of the whole american system of civil government mm. take a little break dr doug grouthaus is our guest along with dr peter capture in studio we'll be right back Dr. Doug Grudhouse as our guest. He's an apologist and speaker and author, and he is um, with us the whole hour talking about critical theory. Peter, you had a question about how it might be coming into the churches. Yeah, I'm curious, Doug, what you see in terms of critical race theory beginning to intersect with pastors and churches who are wanting to be engaged or involved in these conversations on reconciliation what would maybe be some cautions you would have to just sort of adopt some of the principles of critical theory within this desire, authentically so, to want to, to engage with reconciliation? Where are the cautions? Where are the red flags? And where would you say, huh, that may sound good, but that is not kingdom in the least? Right. Well, I think a lot of it goes to uh, how we know things and how do we know what is just and what is right? And Scripture does say uh, repeatedly to be concerned about the widows and the orphan, the marginalized, the oppressed. Jesus spoke of when you minister to the least of these, you're ministering to him. So that's not negotiable. Uh, the church needs to be about 
caring for those who have had a hard time and maybe don't have a voice. But one thing that really concerns me as a philosopher and as a Christian is this idea of standpoint epistemology that I mentioned earlier, which is uh, those that are, excuse me, those that are deemed oppressed have what they call their lived experience of being oppressed, and this becomes the objective, absolute, universal truth, and anyone who is not oppressed has nothing to say about it. Now, I think we want to say yes and no. We want to say, I'll just make it personal. I'm I'm a white male. I'm 64. I don't know what it's like to experience racial discrimination because I'm black or because I'm yellow or because I'm brown. I simply don't know. I do know people who have experienced that, and I talk to them about it. Uh, I, I ask sometimes my uh, male Christian friends, do you think you've ever been pulled over by a policeman just because you're black and they think you're suspicious? And I have one uh, African-American pastor friend who said, oh, yeah, so many times in Denver. He's probably in his early 40s. I have another friend who's probably in his early 50s, lives in another part of the country, who said, I don't think it's ever happened to me. You know, both African-American. But what concerns me is that a lot of people who say that their lived experience has told them that America is systemically oppressed don't know any economics don't know American history, and take their experience to be the final word, and typically their experience is blended into this cultural Marxism, which uh, doesn't really recognize uh, the founding principles of the country and that we have resources within our system to address uh, racial discrimination, to address racism, and so on. So, I think we need to be very alert to the underlying worldview and also alert to uh, the idea that uh, lived experience, while extremely important, doesn't determine ultimate reality. We've got to look at ultimately what Scripture says, and we need to understand something about the American system of civil government, something about our history of being able to reform under pressure. And then also to take a hard look at the facts on the ground here and not just look at a news report and listen to five minutes of commentary and then hours of people on one side or the other uh, going on and on about it. We need to ask statistical questions about uh, violence against African-Americans by the police. We need to talk about incarceration rates. What are the real causes behind these things? And what I find is that while I certainly uh, understand that there are racists in America and there's still policies uh, in civil government that may be disadvantageous to people of color, overall, our society is not structurally racist. And if there are disparities among racial groups, a disparity does not automatically mean discrimination. It doesn't automatically mean Racism. There are all kinds of reasons for disparities, including uh, family background, what part of the country you live in, what kind of uh, school system you go to. Thomas Sowell's the master of, of looking at all these kind of things. So I'm afraid that some people in the church with really good intentions, wanting to seek first the kingdom and minister to the least of these, are just glomming on to a theory that 
is is not very biblical and is really more a cultural Marxism than anything that we as American Christians would want to appropriate. Doug, the you know, Bible talks about the value as humans because we you know, were created in God's image, and it seems that now more than ever we're being identified in the culture with race and gender and and uh, sexual preference. Yes, and that's that's a big concern of mine. I think we need to view people as made in God's image and likeness, whatever their race, whatever their sexual orientation may be. And then also, if we're in the United States, as Americans, and we have certain rights and responsibilities as citizens, we have a great heritage as Americans. And those two things, I think, are dropping out of view. It's an us versus them mentality. And there's another aspect to this, which is called intersectionality. And the idea is that if you belong to several oppressed classes, then you are especially uh, especially in bad shape in the United States. So let's say if you're black, a woman, and a lesbian, well, you belong to three categories that are outside of the norm, and you would have triple uh, the problems. And I want to say perhaps, but you have to view people as individuals. There might be a um, you know, a black lesbian woman uh, who's a tenured professor at an Ivy League school who makes five times more than I do. So I think we have to look at individuals. And and also when you look at statistics, you have to be careful uh, to not be fooled by statistics. And again, Thomas Sowell is very good at explaining those kinds of things. But what may look like racism on the surface, if you just look at one statistic, may not end up uh, – it may not be that race is the explanation for a particular disparity in in a particular situation. So I think it makes a lot more sense to think of people as having intrinsic rights as being made in God's image. And then America recognizes that in the Declaration, uh, all men are created equal uh, by – God. We have certain unalienable rights. And then let's assess people as individuals and let's try to abide by uh, the rule of law and where laws are wrong. They can be reformed over time. Uh, you don't have to revolt against the law by destroying public buildings and and burning them and attacking mm-hmm. police officers and so on. That's that's not the right pattern of change mm-hmm. in the United States. Yeah. We have so many legitimate ways of changing for the better. Yeah, Doug, we're up against a hard break. So that professor you okay. said that she might make five times more than you, uh, that might be true, but she also doesn't own a Dr. Seuss book worth $7 million, So, <laughs> No, not I think you're ahead. I think you're Probably ahead. Probably not. Yeah. yeah. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Doug Gruthaus is our guest. We're talking about critical theory. Take a short break. Dr. Peter Kapsner has joined me uh, today as well. We'll be right back. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the 
All right, Dr. Doug Grudhaus is our guest. He's a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, Evangelical Philosophical Society, and Society of Christian Philosophers. He's authored a whole bunch of books, including Christian Apologists. He's the he's a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. And I'm joined in studio by Dr. Peter Kapsner. Peter, during the break, we had kind of an interesting uh, question. I'll let you ask it. Yeah, I'm curious. I've got to teach about socialism tomorrow in one of my classes, and I'm sure it's going to come up. The question was, Jesus a socialist? And I'm curious how you would answer that question so I can tell my students tomorrow how you answered it, not me. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Well, I think the short answer is no. Um, Let me go to a text that some people use, and that's in the book of Acts, where you see uh, several texts where the early church had all things in common. And so people will say they were following the the radical love of Jesus, of loving your neighbor and putting the other person first. And so they didn't consider their property their own, but they shared it with everybody else. So why wouldn't that be a pattern for all of society? Why not have the civil government distribute all of the goods so no one has any lack? Well, a few things. First of all, the church uh, at that time was a voluntary organization. So This was not a program of the civil government. It was simply a way for the early church to be radically generous and cope with the struggles and persecution that they had at the time. Uh, Jesus didn't come to to advocate any one form of civil government per se, but when you look at his teachings, it is a way of radical generosity and service and self-sacrifice. But Jesus never advocated a, a violent overthrow of the civil government or of any kind of uh, socialist order. So he didn't talk a whole lot about um, political matters. In some ways he did. Um, like in Matthew 22, he was asked whether or not his followers should pay taxes to Caesar. And he said, uh, you should, but uh, – Remember, there's a distinction between God and Caesar, so render the things to God that are God's and those to Caesar that belong to Caesar. So he recognized there is a place for civil government, but it's not the ultimate place. Uh, The state is not God. And sadly, socialist programs always end up giving far too much power to the state because they take away private property rights, they regulate incomes, they regulate prices. And they don't give people the freedom that people deserve to associate and engage in various business decisions. And it's not a good way to create wealth. It's not a good way to uh, order society to give people freedom. So I'd say Jesus was not a socialist. He didn't speak to a developed political theory. But I think we have more information on that in, in the rest of Scripture and Looking at the lessons of history and common sense, I think we should say that uh, while personal generosity is radically needed, that um, the state's function is essentially negative. It's essentially that of the power of the sword, as Paul puts it in Romans 13. It is to uh, prevent violence. Uh, it is to uh, protect citizens from criminality and so on. And the purpose of the state is not to uh, radically redistribute and control and regulate 
everything. In fact, uh, the state that tries to do that in Scripture is in Revelation 13, and it's referred to as the beast. Wow. Doug, the, some of the narrative on the critical theory are things like America is based on slavery and the Constitution is a racist document. Would you comment on that? Mm-hmm. Yes. The New York Times started something a few years ago called the 1619 Project. And they say that in 1619, the first slaves came from Africa to the United States and that America is therefore based on slavery. So that's the beginning of America, 1619, not 1776, when we had the Declaration of Independence from Britain. Now, this idea is very, very wrong because, uh, first of all, when you look at our founding documents, you have a statement in the Declaration that, that all men are created equal. Now, was that perfectly followed? No. It wasn't, um, and we had to sadly go through a terrible, terrible civil war. But uh, the whole country did not benefit from slavery. The South did to some extent, but not the entire country. And moreover, uh, the slaves were freed, and there was an amendment to the Constitution to that effect. Now, one thing that people get excited about is that uh, the Constitution— basically uh, allows for slavery, but it doesn't actually condone it. And it's a little complicated, but the the Constitution was, um, um, you know, kind of a compromise between the North and the South. So there is some allowance for slavery, but it's not that slavery is somehow an intrinsically good institution. I deal with that in an article online, which is called America, Critical Theory and Social Crisis. I have a couple of paragraphs on that. But people say the Constitution was created to uh, perpetuate slavery, and and slaves are not fully people in the Constitution, and that's simply bad history. It's, it's not true. Doug, I'd love for you to, to comment on the cancel culture. Yeah, that's something that's really been out of control. I think it's a way that people try to uh, atone for sin without Jesus. Uh, It's that if something, uh, if we find out something bad about someone, then we have to destroy all recollection of that person. Now, I think that in some cases, let's say a statue to a Civil War figure uh, might need to be removed from a public place uh, because we don't want to glorify that person, but people taking it into their own hands and destroying it or burning it or toppling it is something else entirely. And this very easily gets out of hand because in some cases, uh, monuments and statues have been defaced when there's nothing racist or sexist about them whatsoever. And people are getting so out of hand with this, they're claiming some, last summer, were claiming that actually Abraham Lincoln was was a racist, at least against Native Americans, because he didn't do everything uh, the way, you know, a left-wing woke person would do it today. So we've got to cancel him, too. So I think it's a way of trying to uh, blot out wrongdoing um, in a way that is very unwise and tends to be quite reactionary. And I think 
part of the problem behind the whole critical theory movement and wokeism is that uh, people don't realize that, as Scripture says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Perfect justice uh, happens at the eschaton. Perfect justice happens when God wraps up human history with his final judgment. And before then, we are to seek the welfare of the city to which we are exiled, as Jeremiah put it in Jeremiah 29. And we should seek justice and walk humbly with God. But realize that we're only going to approximate it. And when you want to create a utopia by destroying all evil, you're simply going to create more evil. And that's exactly what happened in the Soviet Union, what happened under Mao Zedong in China, what happened under Pol Pot in Cambodia. And to a lesser extent, but still a very bad extent, uh, happened under Castro in Cuba. It's this revolutionary mentality that you have to completely destroy the old way, cancel it, if you will, and bring about a totally new order. And the people who bring about the totally new order uh, are not sinners. They're not flawed at all. They're part of what the Marxists used to call the revolutionary vanguard, or the uh, they'll establish the dictatorship of the proletariat. And a more measured, wise approach would be that we can't divide the human race like that. I love this line from Solzhenitsyn that said the line separating good and evil cuts uh, into every human being. So you're either redeemed through the work of Christ or not, but societally you can't just divide everything into sheep and goats according to political standards. We need some proper procedures, and we need humility, and uh, we have to not follow any kind of utopian scheme that says we need to eradicate, you know, we need to cancel certain people. We need to render them impossible. There's a line from the Communist Manifesto where Marx and Engels say that the proletariat have to be um, swept away and rendered impossible. And I think you see that same mentality in a lot of critical theory is that uh, we don't want to hear from white people. We don't want to hear from males. We don't want to hear from people who have, you know, supposedly had all the power, and now it's our turn to to dictate and dominate the situation. And you really don't have a voice at the table. You don't have a place at the table. You don't have a voice anymore. So I'm finding people now that are coming against free speech. Free speech is not a good idea in critical theory because it's just a, a way for people with power to perpetuate their old oppressive ideas. So you have the idea of deplatforming people, where certain speakers are not allowed to speak on college campuses. Or uh, we don't want to hear this particular perspective, so we're going to kick you off Twitter or take you off of Facebook because uh, we don't think your speech is worthwhile. Your speech is hate speech, so we won't even bother to refute it. We just want to silence you. We want to muzzle you. Um, I've got an article that will be coming out on that issue pretty soon at the Centennial Institute. That is something that really concerns me, especially as a philosopher, because I love arguments. I mean good arguments where you, you give evidence and you marshal logic and say, okay, am I right or wrong? Let's talk about it. But cancel culture 
really leads to a denial of the freedom of speech, which means you're going to be controlling speech and prohibiting a whole lot of speech. And one of the freedoms of the First Amendment is, oh, we got the freedom of religion, of speech, of press, of assembly. What about that? Um, now, that relates directly to the civil government, that the Congress will make no law prohibiting those things. But when people stop respecting free speech as a way to create debate and dialogue and get at the truth, then all that's going to be left is propaganda and power mongering. In fact, I've even found uh, some quotes of people that don't believe in objective truth anymore. They say the idea of objective truth is, is a white idea. But you can't get away from the idea of objective truth, because if you say the question of objective truth is just a white imperialist dominating viewpoint, you're claiming that's objectively true. You know, you're claiming that's <laughs> the way the world is. So you can't get away from it. I heard somebody on NPR a couple of years ago, or maybe a year ago, say that the concept of objective truth is white supremacist. And I thought, no, um, the question is, what is true? Now, if you're a white supremacist and you think that black people are intrinsically inferior, then that's objectively false. But the issue is not skin pigment here. The issue is truth or falsity and whether or not we can make a good argument for it. So if you think that there's still a lot of political systemic racism in the United States, then uh, make a good case for it, a real thorough case, and we'll listen. Yeah. But just to say we have our lived experience, we know uh, that America is structurally terrible, we have to totally transform it, You know, the Constitution is a racist document, and you don't get to debate me about it, that is a very poisonous situation. Mm -hmm. Dr. Doug Gruthaus is our guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. Doug Bruthouse and Dr. Peter Kapsner. Peter, that break was essential just to give our brains a it was. 90 seconds to <laughs> just a reset, to air out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but some great questions. This is a difficult topic. It is a difficult topic, and and I find that you know some of these topics like this, it's almost the the situation that the more important that topic it is, it is the the more I feel like molasses has been poured over my brain somehow, and and I don't know what that's representative of, but this is such an important topic for how we think now, and also how our kids are thinking into the future. I, you know, Doug, I, going back to some of what you said, you, you've hinted throughout some of your explanations of critical theory about maybe some different ways of seeing the world and understanding the world and different lenses of reconciliation. And especially enjoyed some of what you said right at the end there, that if there's going to be objective truth, then it's a question of what are the right ideas? What what are the ideas that we want to weigh in terms of, of ways to live our life? And does the church have a role in terms of saying, you know what, this version of reconciliation would be a, an actual version that would lead us to a, to a sort of a free and sympathetic and open-handed and, um, and, and relationships, again, that are, are truly reconciled and not just canceled one to another? How, how do we walk out this from a biblical standpoint, a church standpoint, 
in reconciliation that's so very different than the critical theory of your uh, version of this? Right. Well, I think it has to go to the essential truths of Scripture about that we're all made in, in God's image, that God did not place one race above another, that God is concerned for justice, that people be treated fairly and there not be different standards for the same kinds of people. There's a lot in Scripture about being concerned of those, for those that don't have a voice or those that have been exploited in one way or another. But then we've got to do the hard work of doing some history and some economics and some politics and trying to figure out if we have these goals that I just mentioned, what has worked to help achieve them to some extent in the past and what has not helped to achieve them? So a lot of people will say that because we have so much systemic racism, the civil government has to come in and redistribute all kinds of wealth and render certain kinds of speech illegal. And this is the way to compensate for previous ills. And you have to say, well, let's let's do some economic history here. And Charles Murray wrote a book, oh, 30 years ago called Losing Ground. And his essential, he's a social scientist. His essential thesis was that all the social programs that came about in especially in the 1960s, that were supposed to uh, alleviate or at least ameliorate uh, black poverty and discrimination didn't help very much. In fact, hurt in many cases. If you look at indices such as income, uh, imprisonment, the decline of family structure, marriage, the rate of illegitimacy, and so on. And Thomas Sowell says the same thing. So you can have programs that are very well-intentioned, top-down governmental programs, okay, we've got problems, let's try to fix them. And these programs, in fact, don't don't really help. They may hurt. So Christians can have very good intentions and see the state as the solution for all these problems, when in fact, it may not be. Thomas Sowell often goes and cites statistics for, let's say, black families in, uh, let's say, the 40s and 50s, and you look at divorce rates, uh, illegitimacy rates, income rates, education, and so on. And I'm being kind of vague, but generally speaking, the statistics were better before the war on poverty, you know, before the Great Society, than afterwards. So the idea that slavery is the cause of all the um, inequities or all the uh, I shouldn't use that word. The word I should use is uh, disparities. Doesn't really fit the facts because um, while blacks, even where blacks were pretty badly discriminated against in the 50s uh, and before that, a lot of the indicators of social success were better than they were after these massive civil government programs. So we have these goals of justice and fairness and love and uh, helping people who are downcast. But then you have to say, what is the best way to do this? And through my thinking and my study over many years, I do not believe that anything like socialism or statism is the best way to handle these matters, and certainly not the kind of cultural Marxism that we see now in the critical theory movement. Doug, I'm curious about the the word... um... American 
exceptionalism. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, that's another essay I'm working on. But um, we'll get to work. Oh my, yeah. Well, there's <laughs> Just work don't to sit do. There, talk to us. A lot of people. Well, you're you're wasting my time right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got what five minutes to talk about this, but uh, there are two basic views on this. One is that American exceptionalism is a white supremacist idea. We have to get rid of it, and all cultures are basically equal. And there's a um, actually a, a white supremacist view of, of American exceptionalism, which is America, because it's basically white, is better than the rest of the world. Now, I think both of those ideas are wrong, that American exceptionalism has to do with the natural benefits we have in America, our great national uh, natural resources and beauty and so on, and also the wisdom of the American system. And the opportunities to bless our own people and to bless the world through uh, this system of ordered liberty that our founders came up with and which we have tried to uh, stay true to all these years. So I view exceptionalism as a gift. In fact, Charles Murray has a little booklet on this just called American Exceptionalism. And he says this is not a debate. This is just a fact. Uh, There's no other country in the history of the world that came together through, through the deliberation of deeply learned people, as we have with the uh, Constitution and, and also with the Declaration of Independence. And there's really been no system like this. We are exceptional in our origin. We are exceptional in keeping a functioning republic going for all these years. And we are also exceptional in surviving a civil war and in uh, reforming our laws and practices to become more just with respect to minorities and women and others. So I think we are an exceptional nation, but I think also what Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. So this doesn't get us off the hook. It's not, well, we're exceptional, so God's on our side no matter what we do. That's not it at all. Uh, The Jews were God's chosen people, but God was stricter with them than other peoples, because they knew so much, and they were accountable for what they knew, and God was not above judging them, even exiling them. So I don't see American exceptionalism as uh, being white supremacist or uh, being a defective view uh, in, in any way. I don't think that we are just like every other nation. That's absurd. We have more wealth. We have more opportunities. People are banging down our doors to try to get into the country. Uh, There's a reason for that. So I think we are an exceptional nation, but everything exceptional about us is a gift from God, and it also brings with us uh, tremendous responsibilities, and we also need to face uh, great mistakes that America has made, and perhaps we have made as Americans. I got a couple responses from listeners that just came in. Thank you for this episode. And Jim from Connecticut said, I'm loving this. I wish I too could just calmly articulate this whole subject, but I can't. He's got a gift. And for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So nice. Sure. Yes. Nice work, Doug. So Thank you. eight down, 91 left to go. So <laughs> that's right. Doug, how, did, how did he ever convince you? Did he do a Jedi mind trick? Is that how you got to the head of 100 episodes? How did this work? 
He doesn't remember. I, that's the beauty part. That's I don't even remember. That's another show. <laughs> but, Doug, thank you so much for doing the show. I just enjoyed oh, this. Uh, it's given us all a lot to think about. And I would love to have you back on again when you've written more articles. So get back to work. Yeah, I will. I will get back to work right now. Okay, thanks. Dr. You're Doug. Welcome. Yep, Dr. Doug Gruthaus has been my guest. And if you want to go to his website, let me spell it for you. D-O-U-G-L-A-S. G-R-O-O-T-H-U-I-S dot com, com. And Peter, thank you so much for coming in and sitting with me and Doug. This has been a really a fascinating hour. It really has. I think it. He just as as Jim. It was Jim from Connecticut, right? Said that yeah. just it just an even keeled, level headed look at some of these things that can maybe help us understand these things do impact us. They're certainly yes, they going to be impacting the future and our kids and how they're growing up. And and I just think I'm going to need to listen back to this too. to to just sort of sort through again some of what he had to say about these things. Yeah. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I have loved being with you. I looked forward to. Mondays, because it's nice to be back here with you. I hope you have a great evening, and I'm looking forward to our time tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.